Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my medical director, Dr. Rob Dixon. Hi, Casey. And today, we're going to take a little bit of a 180 approach. Um, often here on the podcast, we start with a diagnosis and we teach from there. It's very common in, in med school, paramedic school. You get a lecture on CHF, a lecture on asthma. We've had COPD podcasts we tackled here on the show. But how to get to that final diagnosis is often a process that all levels emergency providers struggle with. To go from an undifferentiated abdominal pain patient, for example, with unstable vitals, and then filter that down to an organized uh, differential is often really super challenging. So as we discussed in our initial chest pain episode, we're not going to spend time with non-emergent chronic diagnoses. We're just going to hit the ones that are deadly when missed. That's where we as emergency providers have to begin. So today we're going to focus on the serial killers for the shorter breath dyspneic patient. So when people call with trouble breathing, what things kill them emergently? Yeah, so I mean, I'm going to go right back to our top five killers. You know, here we kind of think of everything in fives, easy number to remember, but they're the same suspects that we've talked about in other casts. So COPD asthma, scape, or sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. Are you impressed that I remember Nailed that? Nailed it. Thank you, doctor. Uh, I can never remember scape or scrape, whatever, but hypertensive pulmonary edema. Pneumonia infarction, pulmonary emboli, or, or uh, acute coronary syndrome. And then don't forget non-pulmonary causes like acidosis and DKA. Those patients are going to present with tachypnea, difficulty breathing. So COPD asthma, hypertensive crisis or scape, infection, pneumonia, infarction, pulmonary edema, or coronary syndrome, or non-pulmonary causes like DKA. So bronchospasm, bronchospasm scape, pneumonia, infarction, non-pulmonary acidosis. So think about those five things as, we're, as we walk through this entire podcast. So where do we start? We start before we get to the patient. I, sometimes it's the biggest mistake I see new learners make is trying to think through a differential or think through uh, the possibilities after they see the patient. We should be thinking about these five things en route. Always approach the shorter breath patient considering these killer five diagnoses first. Remember, if you've heard me say it once, you've heard me say it a hundred times on here, vital signs are called vital signs for a reason. They're often some of the only objective, hard data points that we have in the field. So look at your vital signs. And included in those vital signs, and especially in the shorter breath patient in the pre-hospital setting, use your entitled CO2 waveform. This is not an end title lecture, but that number can be beyond valuable, and we're going to hit it several times as we talk through these, uh, these diagnoses. Also on the objective findings list is the exam. Now, we all know this one has uh, potholes and areas where it can fool you, but think about wheezes, think about rowels, think about ronchi. Does the patient have edema? Do they have JVD? Do they have unilateral leg swelling? Heck, Remember to look at the legs, look at the calves, do, do quick palpation there, thinking about edema in volume overload situations, thinking about uh, asymmetric swelling, erythema, and pain in a big, big old DVT. And remember that other objective point that we are getting most every single time, and that's your blood glucose. And that may not be one that 
automatically rings here when we're talking about shorter breath patients, but we'll get to it in number five, the non-pulmonary acidosis cases. That, that blood sugar can often be a big key. And then OPQRST, remember onset, provocation, palliation, quality, radiation, and severity. So oftentimes that can be a guide for you when you're asking the questions to the patient. Tell me about your symptoms. And one of the big ones in here is going to be the onset because many of these we're going to use for a differentiating factor, whether or not you're talking about an acute onset or more of a subacute insidious onset. So timing is going to be key. And then go back to their medical history, right? Are they smokers? Do you see a NEB machine on the uh, end table beside where they're sitting or an oxygen tank? Often can be a, a cue to those COPD emphysema patients. Use the med list. The patient may not be able to tell you they have congestive heart failure, but if you see furosemide or Lasix, there's not many other reasons why patients are going to be on diuretics. Uh, diabetes uh, history or diabetes treatments, if they're on insulin, if they're on uh, metformin, um, sometimes that can be the key that, hey, we need to check a, check a sugar, right? And then know your PE risk factors when we think about historical factors, not just what medical problems do you have, but especially in the case of pulmonary infarction, has the patient undergone some procedure or are they in some risk factor category to make them more likely to have PE? And we'll go through those in a bit. So start with number one, uh, COPD asthma. What, what kind of things do we need to be thinking about when we approach that patient? So and I, I think you summed it up, Casey. I mean, the way that I approach all these undifferentiated patients is first, I just have a listen to the story, right? So I I try to figure out subjectively, what's the story? What's the patient telling me? Is it, you know, what, what kind of story would I hear in COPD or asthma? I'd hear something gradual. The patient's been unwell for a day or so. They've been using their inhaler more. These are very common themes. Maybe they have a little bit of a fever. They've had worsening of their chronic cough. So those types of things. And what, what that spells out to me is a gradual process that's gotten worse and worse and then provoked a call for shortness of breath, right? Some of those historical questions Dr. Patrick brought up. Is there the positive uh, nasal cannula sign, you know, with the 18,000-foot nasal cannula from the oxygen concentrator that's going around the house? Are there, is the patient on inhalers? Have they used their nebulizer a bunch of times today? How many times have they used it? Are they a smoker? Do they have a pre-existing diagnosis of asthma or COPD? So those are kind of some of the subjective things. When we get to objective or what we can see, it's their clinical exam. What are their vital signs? Does the patient have tachypnea? Does the patient have hypoxemia? What's our entitled CO2? And what does that waveform look like? Okay. I'm not going to get into an evaluation of, of waveforms because I think we probably focus way too much on the ones that aren't important, not the ones that are important. But remember, what would you see there, right? In a prolonged exhalation, you'd see this kind of classic shark fin capnography. Um, have a listen to their chest, right? As Dr. Patrick said, there's no perfect clinical exam. But when you find a positive finding, it's usually a good thing, except for in asthma, right? A silent chest in asthma where you hear nothing is really a fairly ominous sign or can be a very, very ominous sign. So that means the patient's not moving enough air um, to produce any, any wheezing. So fear, 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 the quiet asthmatic. But listen for wheezes. Listen for ronchi and rowels. Uh, remember? And managing, when we're kind of jumping a, jumping ahead to, to managing these patients, don't forget that we have to differentiate between COPD and asthma, i.e. asthma, a 
uh, acute reversible chronic lung disease. So we have bronchospasm, we have inflammation that is acute, and then you, you treat it and it reverses completely. As for COPD is chronic destruction of the conducting airways and lower airways, right? Those patients never get back to 100% baseline because they have destroyed lungs. Remember, epi is for asthma in the severe asthmatic, not COPD, right? Also, the last thing I would leave you with is just when you think, put this all together subjectively and objectively, what we heard and then what we saw and we found, don't forget that some of these folks with bad lungs in asthma, COPD, anything that retains air can hyperinflate and they can pop a bleb and have a spontaneous pneumothorax, right? Not uncommon. So some additional stuff you got to think about. Was their, was their COPD stable or their rest, respiratory rate stable? And then they had a sudden onset of some pleuritic chest pain and this, this decline in their, in their physiologic stats. So those are, those are kind of some of the things that I think about when I'm trying to sort these guys out. Great review and summary there. It's not meant to be a COPD asthma discussion. And if you're going to be a stickler out there and say, oh, but wait, you gave us five things and you included bronchospasm, scape, pneumonia, infarction, non-pulmonary acidosis, and then you go right into number one and talk about a pneumothorax. <laughs> well, we talked about pneumothorax in the initial serial killer series lecture on chest pain. And we're dividing these up more to give you a framework, not to say that pneumothorax will always have chest pain, right? It's, there's going to be some right. overlap of the Venn diagram here. And a pneumothorax can definitely present with chest pain and shortness of breath. Just know that for delineation's sake, we had to make some... Uh, is, is Dr. Patrick hedging his bet had uh, to, make to some, ward off the Twitter trolls or well, not? Well, no, <laughs> I just, I wanted to try to keep it at five. And I think <laughs> before you know it, your list is up to nine or 10. And I want to give you five killers that you consider so that it's uh, not overwhelming. So let's move on to number two. Uh, I specifically arranged this uh, back and forth so I would get uh, CHF and de decompensated scape or acute pulmonary edema. Uh, it's my, my favorite of the topics. And when we think about scape, the A stands for acute, and timing defines this condition. It doesn't get worse over days to weeks. It gets worse over minutes to hours at the longest. And remember, the S is sympathetic, so sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. And when we have increased sympathetic tone, what do we see in our vital signs? We see tachycardia and hypertension, often with diaphoresis. Looks just like a sympathomimetic toxidrome patient. They're going to be hypertensive, tachycardic, and sweaty. What's, what do we need to do for these folks? You've listened to podcasts at all. You know that I'm going to scream about nitrates. And they need afterload and preload reduction as rapidly as possible. And we do that here at MCHD with high-dose IV nitrates. If you don't have that in your system... Uh, pound the sublinguals and pair that with positive pressure, uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation uh, saves lives in these folks. Don't forget the ECG. Remember that uh, infarct can be associated in these situations, so don't forget the 12 lead. And remember that scape is just one subset of C CHF exacerbation, and the, the others being chronic volume overload and cardiogenic shock. Um, the kicker here is going to be cardiogenic shock is going to be in shock and chronic volume overload is going to occur over days to weeks with lower extremity edema, often missed doses of diuretic or increased salty holiday food. Uh, but again, that's going to be more of a chronic subacute insidious onset as opposed to that tripoding sweaty. I was well an hour ago and now I'm an extremist. 
So COPD asthma, number one. Number two, scape. Number three, pneumonia. Hit some pneumonia high points for the listeners. So this is often an insidious process, right? It's kind of like the historical findings you're going to find in, in some COPD and asthma case, right? It's usually a respiratory infection that kicks these things off. So this is an insidious kind of onset of this. They're going to have some things you'd expect, maybe a productive cough, a fever. Um, they may have hypoxemia. Look for their, their classic exam finding would be ronchi, but they can have rails and wheezes also. Remember, people with COPD and asthma get pneumonia. So sometimes these are kind of mix and match, you know, it's really difficult to, to sort those two particular ones out. I always say watch out for a shock index and Dr. Patrick put on some a formula here. Yes, 0.8 is, it's the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure. I always think of one to one. When your heart rate starts reaching the level of your systolic blood pressure, you've got a positive shock index, right? When those are one to one, that's a get out of jail free card i.e. you really ought to start thinking some type of, of early shock states, very sensitive for both bleeding and non-bleeding types of sh- shock, specifically uh, 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 distributive shock or septic shock. So think about that shock index, early access, early fluids and pressors is needed. I would just uh, extend here. I get the question oftentimes, COPD exacerbation versus pneumonia. You mentioned this in, in your summary there. And these often occur together. And, you know, one of the hallmarks of uh, chronic bronchitis exacerbation type of COPD is going to be increased sputum production. So oftentimes these can be pretty tough to tease out. You may have wheezes and a fever and a productive cough. You know, where do you go? Is that COPD? Is that pneumonia? And realistically, you know, from a treatment standpoint, with some of the recent literature with steroids and and community-acquired pneumonia and decreased morbidity mortality, This is one where the pendulum seems to have swung 57 times, even in my career. But it looks like now we're, you know, we're going to be giving pneumonia patients steroids. So if you think, man, is this COPD or is this asthma or is this pneumonia? Well, you're probably not wrong thinking, okay, let's make sure our shock index is okay. Let's give them some nebs and some steroids. That overlap there is actually probably not a bad thing. It may even be indicated. So we fought over the next one, uh, number four on the list, infarction a little bit here in the office. Um, and I will have to give Dr. Dixon credit for this one. I wanted to include uh, PE, and I wasn't sure how to include uh, ACSMI because sometimes a typical ACS presentation can be just shortness of breath, and he landed on infarction. So I like this because it includes both pulmonary embolus and ACS, myocardial infarction. So let's start with the PE component of uh, infarction and when we teach this here at mchd it's chest pain shortness of breath plus or minus hypoxemia tachycardia and clear lungs think about pe until proven otherwise because most of the others on this list are going to involve abnormal lung sounds now the one caveat there being the extremist asthma patient but they're going to look really bad and have that asthma history Um, look for tachycardia and hypoxia on the vitals again these are not always present but they, they can be key findings. And let's think about some of the high-risk history for pulmonary emboli. Sedentary, recent surgery or hospitalization, travel, oral contraception, cancer. A big one that's often forgotten is past history of DVT or PE. Have you had it before? They've got a, a, some clotting disorder or some other risk factor. They may have had DVT, PE in the past. Uh, pregnant patients, postpartum patients are also at high risk. So we're not doing CTPE protocol in the, in the ambulance, but 
just have a look at the legs. Have a look at their calves. Uh, you find the big, big, nasty, red, swollen calf, and that can be a real key once you deliver that patient to me in the ED. Just for a quick aside, um, oftentimes as an emergency room provider, I like to know what the next step is for the cardiologist or the pulmonologist. When you deliver me the patient and I'm thinking about pulmonary embolus, one of the tools that I often use is called the PERC rule, the pulmonary embolism rule out criteria tool. And this is initially developed and targeted, targeted low risk patients. I won't go into the details here, but what are some of the risk factors that I consider uh, when I'm working these patients up and age greater than 50, heart rate greater than hundred sats greater, or excuse me, heart rate greater than hundred sats uh, less than 95%, excuse me, leg swelling, hemoptysis or coughing up blood, recent surgery or trauma, prior DVTPE or hormone use. So oral contraception or hormone replacement therapy. So those are the things that go into the, into the PERC rule that we often use in the ED when we're risk stratifying these patients. Not that you need to memorize those, but it's a good sort of synopsis of some of the things that we're looking for. Age, heart rate, O2 sats, legs, coughing up blood, surgery trauma, past history of the disease, or any hormone use. And just to clarify, Casey, those would all, each of those would be a high-risk uh, factor to where you couldn't rule out. Uh, it would make it more likely. The more of these they had, the more likely as a clinician you would be to go down the PE pathway. Yeah, so, this, so basically when, when you can check negative on all of the PERT criteria, you can, as the emergency provider in the ED, say, no further testing is needed. Depending on how many of these you have, you decide next D-dimer, blood test screening for, for uh, pulmonary emboli, or proceeding to the gold standard, which is uh, CT uh, angiogram of the chest. Okay. All right. Now I'm going to pivot now to those non-pulmonary causes or non-pulmonary causes of tachypnea. Patients are short of breath, but remember, not all tachypneic patients have intrinsic pulmonary pathology. If you have severe acidosis, you're going to be you're going to have a compensatory mechanism. That mechanism that works first, how we immediately compensate, is we blow off CO2, which is relieving ourselves of some of that excess acids, and that's how we compensate. So patients with DKA, patients with uh, toxicity, say salicylate toxicity. Um, are going to be very, very tachypnic. Why? Because they have intrinsic metabolic acidosis and they're trying to get back to homeostasis, right? The body always wants to stay at a normal pH. I get DKA, I don't uh, have enough insulin, and I start using ketones for fuel. We're, we're not going to delve too much into that pathology, but your pH goes down as you get more acidotic. And how do we compensate? Our respiratory rate goes up. So the key to those patients is they'll have a history of it. So go list, have a list of those historical clues the patient's telling you, and then a good chest exam, right? Their chest is completely clear, uh, and they've got a blood sugar that's reading too high, and nothing to make you think they have a PE, they have no chest pain, they're not hypoxic, things like that. Think about a non-pulmonary cause for their, uh, for their tachypnea. And what are you going to see on their end title? It's low. Right. So that gets us through the five shortness of breath serial killers. Let's run through those one more time. Next time you get a run call, short of breath, think about these five killers before you even arrive on scene and try to piece those puzzles, piece the puzzle together as you're listening to the patient and collecting your objective data. COPD asthma, bronchoconstriction, scape, number two, 
crashing pulmonary edema, hypertensive acute pulmonary edema. Number three, pneumonia, pulmonary infection. Number four, infarction, and that can be pulmonary infarction or myocardial infarction. And finally, the non-pulmonary acidosis. The most common one we're going to see there is going to be a diabetic ketoacidosis. So always start with that, those five killer shortness of breath diagnoses in mind. Never start with anxiety, for example. You're giving me chest pain, right? doctor, and that's not even this, that's not even this cast. We're starting with the five killers. Only killers. That, that's our job. Worst first. Use your entitled CO2, shark fin and COPD, exceedingly low values in non-pulmonary acidoses. Many others will talk about CO2 patterns here on the podcast soon. I'm working up the uh, gumption to do that one. Remember, quiet asthma equals bad news. Clear lungs in the shorter breath patient should trigger PE concerns or non-pulmonary acidosis. And then remember, for acute crashing pulmonary edema, that sympathetic drive is up. Diaphoretic, hypertensive, tachycardic, hit them with IV nitrates or sublingual if you have them. And remember to pair that with uh, positive pressure, uh, non-invasive ventilation. And that wraps us up for our Serial Killer Short of Breath episode. As always, if you have questions or concerns or ideas, please email us at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a review or a like wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Dixon. Thanks, Casey. And we'll talk to everybody again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.